in some sense, we're now at a place after Paris where everything is a little bit lower stakes in a sense because we have the, the framework in place and everything now is simply moving that framework along to the next step. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. With the 27th Conference of the Parties, COP27, of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, having recently concluded in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, we now have an opportunity to reflect on what happened there and really assess the process and the outcome. For that and much more, we're very fortunate to have with us today a leading environmental economist with great expertise in climate change policy, both international and domestic policy. And I'm referring to Billy Pizer, the Vice President for Research and Policy Engagement at Resources for the Future, the think tank based in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm pleased to say that I've known Billy for some 30 years since his time as a graduate student at Harvard. So welcome, Billy, to Environmental Insights. Thanks, Rob. So in a few minutes, again, like I said, I'm eager to hear your reflections and assessment of what happened at this year's climate negotiations and the associated festivities at COP27. But first, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. Our listeners always are interested in this. So where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a Tar Heel. And does that mean primary school as well as high school there? Primary school, high school, and even college. Um, I went to uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Where you got a bachelor's degree in physics. That's right. That's right. I was. Uh, I did not immediately find economics. So how did you emerge from physics to then going on to graduate work, master's and PhD in economics at Harvard? What was the chain that took you there? Uh, I did take introductory economics either my first or maybe second semester at Chapel Hill. Um, and I remember thinking to myself how cool economics was because it used math to mm-hmm. represent human behavior. And that was very appealing to me because I really liked math. Uh, and so I kept taking um, economics courses uh, on and off throughout my undergraduate career. And when I was thinking about what to do after college, I I. I mean, this may not have been a great realization, but I, I kind of mm-hmm. felt like the cool stuff in, in physics had been done. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that still, but and meanwhile, it seemed like there were a lot of really important questions in economics that had yet to be answered. So, right. as I started thinking about what I wanted to do after college, um, I really decided uh, I wanted to go into economics. I should also say I did a summer internship at the World Bank mm-hmm. that was formative for me as well and made me think that economics was a really good choice. I can imagine that. Now, so at Harvard, um, can you tell me about your dissertation committee and your topic? Uh, Well, I I went to Harvard kind of having spent the summer at the World Bank thinking I wanted to do development economics. It was 1991 Mm -hmm. and the transition was taking place in uh, Eastern Europe and Russia and I was very excited about that and I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, but over the course of, of studying, I, 
you know, I, I kind of fell in love with econometrics and statistics. Um, I also like microeconomics and development kind of faded into the background. Um, and meanwhile, I uh, began, you know, learning about um, climate change. And I guess it kind of came to me because Bill Nordhaus had just written a book um, mm-hmm. on this topic, which I guess later he got the Nobel Prize for. And it really got me thinking that this was uh, an interesting area. And I remember having a conversation with my uh, primary advisor, Dale Jorgensen, uh, who just recently passed away. And he was trying to convince me to go maybe into uh, tax, uh, like he was very big into consumption tax. But I remember thinking, you know, climate change seems like it could be an up and coming topic. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, I decided to say the to, least. It to say out. that, well, it was clairvoyance, <laughs> but I, I don't know if I can give myself that much credit. But I, I remember thinking maybe I should put a bet on something new and different as opposed to something that people have been struggling with mm-hmm. for the past 30 years. Um, and of course, my, my dissertation committee, uh, I don't even remember who it was, but I definitely remember, Rob, that you and uh, David Cutler, I feel like, staged an intervention for me at one point to help me uh, get through the job market successfully. So I'm forever indebted to that. So I don't recall the intervention, but I'm glad it was helpful. Uh, so your your first position out of graduate school, was that as a fellow and then a senior fellow at RFF? Yeah. So uh, finishing graduate school, I, you know, I, th- I think like a lot of people in graduate school, I regardless of what I came in thinking, I was kind of brainwashed into thinking the only legitimate job after a PhD in economics was academia. Right. Um, and uh, I really wanted to go into research in academia. Um, I, as I tell people, I picked RFF as my job because it was the only really good job offer I had in 1996. Um, so yeah, so I came to RFF thinking uh, I wouldn't necessarily stay at RFF, but you know the truth is I just fell in love with the model of research with an eye towards uh, engagement and decision making, and, and not in some abstract sense, but really oriented mm-hmm. towards questions that people needed to know the answers to. Now, from 2000 to 2001, if I have it right, you were a visiting scholar at Stanford. Then you go off to the Council of Economic Advisors from 2001 to 2003 as a senior staff economist. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. And if I'm right, tell me how those evolved. Sure. Well, you know, the the visit out to Stanford was was wonderful. Um, It it got me a chance. It gave me a chance to meet different people and a different research environment. It definitely convinced me I, I, I liked RFF. Mm-hmm. Um, the Council of Economic Advisors opportunity was 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 really wonderful. Um, I still remember getting the call from Glenn Hubbard, mm-hmm. um, you know, asking me if I wanted to join uh, the council. Now a member of the board of directors. Yeah, he's now a member of our board of directors. But I remember him calling me and he, and he says, hello, this is Glenn Hubbard. And I must have been silent for a few seconds. And he goes, this is Glenn Hubbard, chair of the Council <laughs> of Economic Advisors. That's great. Um, and, uh, and I guess I just had assumed when President Bush won the election and, and Al Gore lost that climate change and environment was not going to be at the top of the agenda. But uh, Glenn came into that role of the Council mm-hmm. of Economic Advisors really wanting to push the environmental agenda. And so he hired me. And it was, it was a really great experience. Uh, unfortunately... Uh, you know, we didn't put as much uh, into environmental policy as I'd wanted in climate change uh, while I was there, but it was a really wonderful experience. And then from there, you went back to RFF for a time and then went into an even more 
important position in the government. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and Energy at the Treasury Department. So again, why don't you tell us how that came about? Well, it came about because Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, mm -hmm. uh, the way I would tell the story, he has two passions uh, outside of you know business and whatnot. You know, one is China. Um, and another is the environment. And mm -hmm. he really worked as Treasury Secretary, despite a global economic crisis, to make progress on both of those issues. So he created a strategic and economic dialogue with China on the one hand, um, and he created an office focused on energy and environmental issues on the other hand. Um, and he approached me, um, or actually somebody on his staff approached me, about being the first Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and Energy mm -hmm. At the Treasury Department, and I at the time had no idea what the Treasury Department did with regard to uh, energy and environment. But it turns out they have a number of important roles, not the least of which is the Treasury Department is responsible for all of the uh, the oversight of the multilateral development banks, um, which through that development role have a huge consequence on uh, the environmental outcomes in developing countries. So a lot of what my job was at the Treasury Department for three years was trying to improve the environmental policies at the multilateral development banks and build up uh, financing for climate investments uh, in those countries. And then you've had a set of illustrious successors, most recent of whom was Catherine Wolfram, who's going to be a visiting professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. And from discussions with her, she also found it to be a a you know a wonderful series of engagements being at that position in the treasury department yeah it's it's hard to you know understate um to overstate sorry um how valuable that sort of experience can be um it's it's a very senior level position um the treasury department is very involved in all sorts of interagency decision making and you really have uh, even more so, I would say, than the Council of Economic Advisors, which is almost more of a consulting agency within the government. Treasury is operational, and 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 you get really involved in operational decisions that the government is making in these in this space. Now, from Treasury, then you went into academia with both feet. You became a tenured professor at Duke University and stayed there for a full ten years. I did. Uh, you know, I, I had to scratch that itch. Um, and uh, I tried out teaching and I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't like grading. Um, and then, and then uh, <laughs> you know, I started getting into uh, leadership roles at the university. And Duke's a wonderful university. Mm -hmm. But I just realized that the mission of the university was not what would wake me up every morning excited. Um, you know, research is great. Teaching is great. But... I wanted to, to, to be somewhere where the mission was really to have impact with the research. And even at a policy school, I mean, you're at a policy school, mm -hmm. so you know this, yeah. uh, the bread and butter is still, you know, research and publications sure. and mm -hmm. teaching. And you have to kind of go a little bit outside of the boundary sometimes if you want to have impact. And so coming to a, back to a place like RFF was really an opportunity to, to focus on uh, being engaged with and running an organization that really uh, was was that impact was central to what they did. Um, so it was it's really been a wonderful return after, you know, 10 wonderful years in North Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. I have my family's in North Carolina. So it was a very family, partly a family motivated move. Um, but now now we're back in D.C. And while you were at Duke, you were there with a, a wonderful set of other environmental and energy economists, including 
a number of my former students, one of whom, of course, was Richard Newell, who's now president of Resources for the Future. Yeah, you know, Richard and I have had a long history of following one another into different roles. So, you know, I came to RFF, then he came to RFF. I went to the Council of Economic Advisors, then he went to the Council of Economic Advisors. Now, he preceded me going to Duke, Mm -hmm. and then I went to Duke. Um, and then he preceded me coming back to RFF, and then I came back to RFF. Um, but we have had this weird tag team over the last 25 years. Well, and, and you've both made great contribu- contributions, I must say, everywhere you've been. So with that, let, let's think about your contributions in the world of environmental economics and policy scholarship before we turn to the policy world. Um, I assume that since your 1996 PhD degree, that's more than 25 years ago, you've seen some significant changes in the scholarly world of environmental economics. Do any, does there, is there one change that stands out to you? Well, you know, I think one thing that's different now, I think, than 25 years ago is I think of environmental economics as being much more mainstream. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like when I graduated, a lot of departments didn't have an environmental economist. Um, and now, most do. Some have multiple environmental economics uh, economists. Um, there are a lot more environment and energy institutes at universities, and it's just it's recognized as a much more mainstream topic, I think, in economics generally. Um, and I think the research reflects that. Uh, there's a lot more uh, publication opportunities. Mm-hmm. I also think that there's uh, you know among ec- ec- economics subfields. Environmental economists tend to be, uh, I would argue, you know, as engaged, if not more engaged in public policy um, than others. And I think that's been really wonderful as well. I think they've had a lot of impact, you know, on the policy choices that have been, uh, you know, made. You know, it's worth stating, you know, to further evidence of what you said about environmental economics going mainstream. There's nothing more mainstream in economics than the National Bureau of Economic Research. And when I graduated my PhD, which was 1988, there was, of course, no program in environmental economics. And now, in terms of the summer workshop, the Environment and Energy Economics Program is the largest, the largest attended of any of those summer programs, which is quite remarkable. Well, that's, I was actually thinking of, uh, you know, your particular, one of your contributions, which was the creation of the journal, the Review of Environmental Economics and Policy, Mm -hmm. uh, which... I don't know what the statistics are, but I think it's, you know, one of the highest ranking uh, journals right now and, and certainly has been, you know, I think a, a, a leading vehicle to influence public policy through environmental economic research. Well, that's great to hear because I'll tell you, the first time I proposed it to the board of directors of the Association of Environmental Resource Economists, they weren't particularly enthused. They, they saw it as, you know, too, uh, too soft compared to what was then the flagship journal of the association, the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management. But a subsequent board uh, liked the idea, apparently, and then they came back to me and said, how about uh, launching this? And it happened. Talking about publications, I know this isn't fair. It's like asking you which of your children's your favorite. But is there one research publication of yours, Billy, that you are most proud of? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in some sense, there are a couple of things I, I guess I think about. I mean, work that Richard and I did a long time ago on discounting, mm-hmm. um, where we took an idea that Marty Weitzman had about how uncertainty affects discounting over the long term, and we kind of quantified it using data. 
um, I feel like that has had a pretty substantial consequence mm -hmm. um, and that's been that's been a source of, of I mean I've, I've been very pleased about that I will say there was kind of a flaw in that <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think we've, we've subsequently come back uh, and the, in the National Academy report that that Richard and I also were involved in he chaired um, kind of fixed that um, and just kind of recognized the importance of the uncertainty and the discount rate and it, it, the possibility it might be correlated with the stuff you were discounting is kind of important um, but that line of work on discounting has been particularly rewarding. And, you know, the other thing that I've, I've really uh, enjoyed and gotten a lot of um, uh, good feelings out of has just been the work on comparing different policy instruments mm -hmm. under uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and that started with my, my dissertation that was looking at uh, prices versus quantities for, for stock pollutants uh, like carbon dioxide, um, but then has gone in a number of different directions mm -hmm. with policy updating and uh, tradable performance standards and all kinds of cool stuff. And that's that's also been quite rewarding. So so let's turn to current times and to the policy world. As I mentioned at the outset, you recently returned from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, for you, what were the most important takeaways, the most important outcomes of that 27th conference of the parties? I guess there, there are like four things, I guess, I, I think about uh, that happened during the, the, the COP27 meetings. Um, at some level, going into the COP, the main topic of negotiations that, that were, countries were very focused was on finance. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, the idea that in addition to, to developed countries supporting emission reductions in, in poorer countries mitigation, in addition to supporting efforts to prepare for the impacts of climate change, you know, adaptation, mm -hmm. there should be a funding vehicle that addressed uh, losses and consequences in developing countries that, you know, couldn't be adapted to. So, yeah. you know, if you, if you lose your, your island um, or landmass because of climate change, um, you know, what do you, what do you do about that loss to your, your well-being and your welfare? So that was a big topic going in. There's a lot of contention around the United States has been very concerned about whether or not there would be a, a notion of liability that went with mm -hmm. such compensation. Um, but remarkably, it was on the agenda. It got negotiated. Um, and in the end, there was an agreement to a new fund. Um, and we can you know, go on about whether that was a good idea or not. Um, it was a little surprising because the United States typically does not like to create new funds. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they were, they were isolated. And I don't think they wanted to be responsible for a bad outcome. And um, and I think they also, you know, recognized the writing on the wall that this was what the majority of countries wanted. And so they, they, they agreed to it. Um, so that's, that was one big outcome. I think if you kind of back up from the negotiations, you know, in some sense, the biggest thing at the meetings in, in my mind over the past couple of years has really been, um, what's been going on in the, in the non-state actor world with voluntary commitments. Mm -hmm. Um, and in particular, I would say recently focused on voluntary, uh, uh, carbon markets. Mm -hmm. um, companies make pledges, jurisdictions make pledges, um, uh, Harvard, <laughs> Duke make pledges, um, and they try to reduce their emissions as much as they can, but to the extent they can't, they're going to buy credits in a market. Um, and that market, uh, we were just talking, I think has been like one to two billion dollars of trades um, or asset creation. And is forecast to be, you know, maybe ten times that over the next decade. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of money uh, going from people to mitigation. 
and that's just been a, a big topic and there have been a number of developments um, that we could talk about in that world. I think the other two things I would just mention, there is, is a broad recognition that we're not on track to meet the targets, the, the, the goals of the convention or the goals of the Paris Agreement to, to limit warming to two degrees or one and a half degrees. And despite that, there weren't dramatic increases in ambition announced. So that's almost like the lack of an outcome that was notable. Um, and then the fourth thing I guess I would just mention is, uh, you know, since August or September, China and the United States have not really been talking uh, at all about climate change. This kind of followed on the uh, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. You know, you could argue that this goes back even further. Um, in the olden days, like in the lead up to Paris, the U.S. and China were cooperating extensively and really propelling the negotiations forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just all on ice. And uh, during COP27, President Biden met with um, Xi Jinping, not at the COP, but you know, as part of uh, a G20 meeting or G7 meeting. And um, that uh, meeting led to a thawing of that situation. And now there's the negotiations have 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 stepped back up. And I think uh, th- that is certainly a significant development because I think it's just very hard to make progress without the U.S. and China talking. Yeah, I very much agree. I think in the long term, that may be the most important outcome of this period of time of the COP, although you're correct that it didn't actually take place within those hallways. It took place 6,000 miles away. Now, the, 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 these annual conferences of the parties and climate change negotiations more broadly are probably better characterized as a marathon than a sprint. And I, another metaphor I've used sometimes is that each one of the COPs are successful in a sense if they hand off the baton to the next one, they don't drop it. Stepping back from the specifics, you've gone through these four items, which is very interesting. Stepping back from that, what's your personal assessment of of this conference of the parties? Well, this was never going to be a uh, a major cop. You know, if you if, this is COP twenty seven, so there's obviously been twenty six before them. Actually, twenty seven if you count the six and a half one um and there have been big ones there have been little ones Mm -hmm. i mean there was one where the kyoto protocol was created there was you know the copenhagen accord which was you know i think of a success other people think it was failure uh there was the paris agreement these were you Mm -hmm. know massive uh events in some sense uh where things really changed direction or, or moved ahead in meaningful ways um and this was never going to be one of those cops um and in some sense we're now at a place after Paris, where everything is a little bit lower stakes in a sense, because we have the the framework in place and everything now is simply moving that framework along to the next step. So there'll be nationally determined contributions, there'll be global stock takes, there'll be developments in the margins on other issues, but there's not going to be a new treaty. There's not going to be another Kyoto Protocol, at least not anytime soon. And so I think it's inevitable that there, there's a little bit less um, um, high-level drama and stakes going on at the cops. That doesn't mean they're not unimportant. It just means that the nature of the cops is different. Yeah, each one is very different. This was supposed to be the implementation cop, but it really turned out to be the loss and damage cop to a large degree. I want to ask you, um, speaking of that, which really relates to some degree to activism, that there's been a quite remarkable rise in youth movements of climate activism 
sort of going back approximately to 2019, at least in terms of a big presence at the annual conference of the parties. And I'm not just referring to Greta Thunberg, who of course sat out this year's COP, but more broadly in, in Europe and the United States. Now, this year, the attendance by youth activists and demonstrators in general was quite suppressed, apparently because of the difficulty and the expense of traveling to and then hotel accommodations uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. But I'm interested in your reaction more broadly to the youth movements of climate activism. Back when I was in college, there were similar movements, but they had to do with the war in Vietnam. Um, so I, I, what do you see these movements of climate activism as valuable, misguided? Where, where do they fit in your mind? It's an interesting question. You know, I remember when I was at Duke and there was, uh, you had this at Harvard as well, I'm sure, you know, a divest movement, right? Yes. And I remember having this conversation because at the time, uh, maybe I've evolved a little bit, but, you know, I just felt like there was, it was not productive to divest from fossil companies, Mm -hmm. uh, at least not oil and gas companies. And the students kind of asked me, well, what do we do? Like as students, and I remember thinking that's a really great question. I have a good answer for it, um, and it's 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 since got me thinking a bit more about the role that that movements uh, and probably youth movements, because usually movements are driven you know by youth or are people who have more energy than you know those of us who are further along, um, and I think it is it does actually play a, an important role. Um, you know, the cops are all about focusing attention and demanding an annual contribution in some sense. Uh, it's like passing go and monopoly or something. You, you have to, you have to show that you've done something, um, Mm -hmm. or it's declared a failure or your country is, is declared a failure. Um, and I think the youth movement and the popular movement to address climate change has that sort of catalyzing role. Um, to help move things along. You know, is it the most important piece? I don't know, but I think it does create part of the, uh, the environment that pushes, pushes uh, action forward. And I think it also creates a dynamic where with the younger generation, I think even more committed uh, to taking action, it helps decision makers, businesses, people that are, are betting you know, literally their money on different events taking place, that this sort of action in the future is going to even accelerate more because the younger generation mm-hmm. is even more concerned about it. So in some sense, I think it, it is pretty important because it does give you a sense of where things are going and that younger people are even more convinced than we are that this is something that has to be tackled. Although that does raise a, a question whether this is a cohort effect or an age effect. Most people, you know, the cliche goes, but I think there's some truth to it, tend to get more conservative as they get older. Um, Or is this a cohort effect and this group of young activists will then become 30-year-old activists, will be inside, you know, COP42 or whatever, inside the negotiating rooms. What do you think about that? Well, I'm sure there is a certain element of growing older and becoming more conservative. I've certainly noticed it in myself. Um, but I do think there there are real consequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, I mean, this was 
10 or 15 years ago uh, talking to some high school students or maybe even junior high school students and, and kind of being amazed they knew how electricity was generated. You know, that there were coal-fired power plants and then there were renewables and that we needed to get off of the coal-fired power plants. I mean, I had no idea about that when I was in junior high school. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, by virtue of being motivated and engaged in the issue, they are going to carry forward with them these concerns and this knowledge in a way that, you know, it took me until I was in my 20s to, like, realize this was an issue. Um, so I do think that there is a real consequence to it that won't just people won't just age out. I tend to agree. There are, there are elements of both, but I, I do think it's a cohort effect, and these people are not going to age out of it. This this notion that you brought up, which makes a lot of sense, of it's a response to a feeling of what can I do. I remember that in an earlier generation on environmental issues. Um, people wanted to do something about a different set, and that spurred tremendous demand for curbside recycling, which became very, very popular, recycling in general, because people wanted to do something about the environment. And you probably get the question I do. I might be at a cocktail party or with a group of relatives or whatever, and people ask me, what can I do about climate change? And then my first answer, of course, is we'll make a charitable contribution to Harvard University or Resources for the Future or both. Um, But then my second answer is always vote. But I, I understand that that's not a very satisfactory response to most people suggesting that they vote they want to do something that's more engaged just to agree with you i think um i actually had the same response to those students at duke a while ago i think i told them they should go out and try to work on the campaigns and get people elected yeah. who are actually going to make a difference on these issues and in north carolina that's you know a real thing to do yes but then you know they, they do want to see things they could do in their own personal life to, to demonstrate action and i will confess you know we uh we installed, installed solar panels we got insulation right now i'm i'm paying for renewable energy although i i can't i can't totally tell you where it's coming from um my son wants me to buy an electric car even though i don't drive to work mm-hmm. um so i do feel like these sorts of things have a demonstration effect and and people want to figure out the right thing to do um and 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 they're and they're they do have consequences they they do people see what you're doing and they and they can emulate you and they can build momentum to take action so i don't i don't think they're unimportant you know whether the most important thing is is a separate question so that that's a good place to bring this to a close with uh, some optimism, optimism that's conditioned upon eventually, you know, empirical analyses of these questions. So let me just say uh, thank you very much, Billy, for having taken time to join us today. I've enjoyed this. I hope it's been okay for you. Oh, it's been wonderful, Rob. It's always fun to talk to you, and and, uh, I, I really hope we get to continue this. So our guest today has been Billy Pizer. He's the Vice President for Research and Policy Engagement at Resources for the Future. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.